welcome to another episode of the Data Chaos Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Wells. Today, we're diving deep into the trenches of data chaos as we unravel the inspiring journey of Houseware, the champion startup that stole the limelight at the 2022 Snowflake Conference. Joining us are Divyanch and Napoon, the innovative masterminds behind Houseware's success. In this episode, they're sharing their experience of navigating the data labyrinth, building data platforms for CDPs, and dealing with data chaos head on. We'll be learning about their unique approach to leverage data from timestamps to sequence events and analyze patterns, ultimately cracking the data chaos code. We'll also explore how Houseware is holding its ground against industry giants like Amplitude and Mixpanel and building applications on top of data warehouses. You'll get an in-depth look at Houseware's technical architecture, their approach to customer interaction, and the value they derive from the data they collect. We wrap up with some engrossing tales of data shared by Nipun, a testament to the importance of data in modern business. So tune in as we set sail on this data adventure, cutting through the chaos and revealing the insights hidden within. Get ready for a captivating exploration of data-driven success. All right, here we are. Divyanch and Napoon, welcome to the Data Chaos Podcast. I really appreciate y'all taking the time to sit down with me today. Uh, you're both in Bangalore, so long ways away from me here in Austin, Texas, but uh, very happy to have you on board and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Same here. Good to be on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Excellent. Well, why are we here today? So you guys run a company called Houseware. Um, you were the 2022 uh, startup winner at the Snowflake Conference. So congratulations to that. A lot of uh, good accolades, I'm sure, out of that. Let's hear a little bit more about Houseware and the problems that you'll solve. Absolutely, Tyler. And I can take a dig at that first. So... Well, very, really happy to be here. I'm Divyansh. I'm one of the co-founders of Houseware. At Houseware, we started as a flip of the word warehouse. And I think that's where our roots sort of tie back to this idea that, hey, this data warehouse is the central place where organizations are starting to collect their data. What happens beyond this is something which was not possible two years ago when we started the company. You would have BI systems, which were essentially aggregate data analytics which are available to different people to monitor metrics, but applications weren't built on top of the data warehouse back then. And that's where we thought that, hey, it would be cool for business applications, SaaS applications as we see today, even applications which are customer facing, what you all are building at Propel would be the future far ahead. And it would be important for the right picks and shovels at the same time, the right applications to be built on top of the warehouse to ensure a good customer experience. Uh, That's where we started Houseware uh, roughly two years ago from today. And uh, yeah, it's been an exciting time building in this ecosystem. I like to say that it is never a dull day in the data land and never been so far, never going to be in the future, hopefully. So uh, thanks for having us again. Absolutely. And before the show got started, before we started recording, uh, you'd mentioned the name of the podcast, Data Chaos, and you started, I saw you light up a little bit and get excited. And I'm, I'm sure you've solved lots of, of data chaos for your customers. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Nipun, you want to go? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so a uh, quick uh, background about me as well. Uh, uh, p- part of uh, the early founding team at Houseware, uh, you know, I, I lead the data platform team here, so I have a lot of stories to tell you about the chaos that we see in the data on a day-to-day. 
a similar story as what Divyansh mentioned before, a uh, house where I was building a data platform for a CDP born out of Europe. Uh, saw similar trends, essentially, more so from, from a builder point of view, where I was the uh, builder who was serving uh, a lot of business folks and realized that, you know, uh, data warehouse had to be the center of gravity for all things data and solve business use cases and drive business outcomes, which is uh, where we are as of today. Uh, lots of interesting things, right? So Houseware is essentially a product analytics uh, solution built natively on top of uh, data uh, warehouses. And if you look at the world of uh, events, right, that itself is a very messy uh, world. Uh, things like, you know, skewed timestamps, when it comes to events, is very common. You you can see you know timestamps that just don't make sense uh, because you know your local devices could be skewed. You can see see timestamps from uh, fifty years into the future. Uh, that's always a fun one and very surprising all the time. But more so, uh, this is a very interesting uh, land because uh, a lot of the times, because you know there are there are essentially ad blockers and certain blockers are present in the uh, in the browser of the user, which is where a lot of data never gets captured, right? Uh, that's a big problem in general that folks in this industry are trying to solve. There are like solutions around, you know, tracking on the server side, not on the client side and things as such. But just dealing with the lack of uh, data, that, that's an interesting one. We've also seen, you know, chaos in terms of uh, just... Uh, names being very funny and very redundant and you know you have to just tear tear your hair uh, to make sense out of them uh, we've seen things where uh, you know the data types of uh, certain event properties changes all of a sudden one day it's a string the other day it's an integer and all all sorts of randomness in in the data uh, of course, the challenge for us is that a lot of the times we, we do not have access to any of this data, right? So Houseware is a SaaS application built on top of our customer's warehouse. So debugging in this case is a is a tough and challenging problem that we're still trying to perfect, to be honest. Uh, how do you essentially go and uh, debug and root cause, uh, find the root cause and essentially fix issues uh, that that ar uh, arrive arise out of chaos in the data, but without getting access to uh, the customer's data, is, is still something we're perfecting. But I think uh, we've been managing well so far. Very cool. Yeah, you brought up a couple of things that are uh, that I've dealt with personally, and let's let's start at the timestamps. So you you mentioned timestamp skew plus just the other craziness that can happen in there. I know we have a. A particular pattern we think about when designing an event and the type of and the you know how many timestamps we actually put in there. Um, have you found a pattern that works for you um, to kind of deal with that level of skew or understand how the timestamp is is traversing the 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 infrastructure and then finally making its way to the warehouse and then obviously finally to to houseware. Yep, absolutely. So one thing here, of course, is that uh, houseware doesn't provide their own uh, SDK which means where we are event schema agnostic. We pretty much work on top of any event instrumentation solution. It could be like a CDP, it could be our in-house implementation. So, uh, you know, a lot depends on what's happening at the source and how things are being tracked. But 
so far we've come up with a very simple uh, solution at our end that seems to be working pretty well i've seen a bunch of uh, implementations at plays people like try four four to five different kinds of timestamps but right now we're sticking with uh, two timestamps that we are interested in one is uh, the local device timestamp at the time the event happened uh, or was captured on on the device locally and the other one is uh, the time at which the event was registered at the server right so that's the server timestamp now how we use both of these is uh, pretty interesting uh, essentially if you have any any logic that requires you to sequence events at a user level or, or at a device level in that case we are going to rely on your local device timestamp right because even if there is a skew hopefully that skew is common across all the events that are getting captured out of that device right in that case just sequencing at a local user level that seems to be working well and any operations that you're doing where you're analyzing a lot of users you're trying to find patterns across multiple devices multiple users in that case we just default to uh, you know the the server timestamp because that's the common uh, denominator across all the users and uh, yeah so that that means you know doing uh, date filters uh, restricting your analysis to a certain event a certain date range of interest that is always done on your server timestamp any sequencing operations we do deal with a lot of funnel analysis a lot of user flows journey flows analysis in that case all the sequencing happens based on a combination of of you know the device timestamp and then if that is same then we probably rely on server timestamp because you you find all sorts of uh, chaos in the data so you have to be deterministic in that case yeah i can see you definitely get some craziness from the clients i mean we run a um, event driven architecture and we record uh, at times almost three timestamps. So similar to you, if uh, my internal infrastructure, when a service or like a Lambda or a Fargate is is generating an event, that's a timestamp. So that you know that comes from the service itself. Then it may hit a gateway. Um, say like for instance, if I you know whatever is next in the hop, I may add another timestamp in there to see if it's how close it is. But also I can understand latency between those hops and and that uh, the, the services. Then obviously it may may end up in a data warehouse, and then we end up ingesting it at Propel, which I may yet add another timestamp, because then you sort of have this benefit of, okay, if the server one's wrong, okay, maybe I can go to the next one, which should be within milliseconds of each other. Well, if that one's wrong, well then what's the what's the next closest thing that I can potentially get to? I mean, obviously you hope there's not skew like that, and you don't have that level of entropy introduced to your system, but occasionally I'm sure it happens, and, and we've probably all seen it. So, uh, you know, definitely, definitely follow a very, I would say, uh, similar approach to uh, keeping those things in, in check and in line. Yeah. So, to be honest, you wanted to ask a question. So, when you won the, uh, Houseware won the 2022 Startup Challenge at Snowflake, what did that, how did that help you? Or how did it, did it help you? Did it hurt you? Sort of what, what, what came out of that? I hope that it did not hurt us uh, for all things, for all practical purposes. And I think it's still helping us to a large extent, right? So good thing about Snowflake is that it has become the de facto warehouse of choice if someone is looking to opt for a cloud-based solution outside of the three big clouds, right? While Snowflake still runs on AWS, it has this 
got this momentum behind itself that it's going to be a company and a product which has been constantly innovating and also very closely aligned to the mission and vision of how sort of building applications which are much more closer to the center of gravity as Nippon mentioned, right? So they're releasing new things and um, actively sort of pursuing those roadmaps in their team. Winning the startup challenge for us was uh, a kind of a natural segue to Housewares founding journey. We really did not do anything separately to really go ahead in this competition, uh, compete, so to say, right? It was a natural extension of, hey, let's go ahead, talk about all the things that we have been talking about internally in front of the world and in front of the Snowflake team and the judges and people like those. So it, it came as a byproduct of all the work that we, our team was doing. The way that it helped us and it's still helping us is, A, like it definitely builds a lot of customer trust. The moment that we start talking to a Snowflake customer especially is that they recognize, okay, we trust Snowflake. Snowflake trusts Houseware. So we can probably trust Houseware. <laughs> so there's this implicit relationship uh, that sort of follows through. And as an early stage startup, that is essentially trying to deal with extremely sensitive data in extremely regulated industries sometimes. Uh, that trust that companies are able to put on top of us, given the association with Snowflake, is supremely helpful, right? Uh, secondly, I would say it opened a lot of doors for, again, us as an early stage startup to access the Snowflake team. Uh, as I said, like their team has been constantly innovating every Snowflake summit that you see in the last three years or so. The roadmap is exploding. And sometimes I see that even customers are trying to find where is Snowflake headed? Uh, in that environment for us to know, okay, like where can we utilize Snowflake's help at the same time, those picks and shovels that Snowflake is building internally, how can we use some of those in our product roadmap? Uh, having access to the right people internally and the right technologies as a private preview customer slash partner has been like fairly helpful to us. I guess like, the whole point goes back to the point of data chaos again because the reason why we started to build on top of Snowflake and managed data warehouses in the first place is because it's just so easy to build on. You do not have to think about spawning a machine. You do not have to think about how many workers or nodes do you associate with them. You don't have to worry about downtime as such, right? So all the dirty chaos that we all have all have had to deal with in the early days of the cloud data infra is sort of now gone, uh, long, long gone with the help of Snowflake. So uh, our customers realize that, we realize that, and I think that's a win-win partnership that we have been able to crack with uh, Snowflake with, by the virtue of winning the startup challenge. No, absolutely. I mean, I think we see a lot of the same things. We play in the same ecosystem. You said that part is easy, right? So the, the part that's easy is uh, folks that are running warehouses, folks that are generating all of this data today, landing that at Snowflake, it's, it's almost a no-op at this point. You can do almost anything you want with it. But you specifically set out to solve a different challenge, and that's building applications on top of that data. Why did you pick that challenge? And what were the reasons that you saw were, were pushing you that way that, that, the, that like a Snowflake customer couldn't solve themselves? Right. That's a great question. And it uh, goes back to 2020, actually, when I was at this company called Atlin, which is uh, today a leader in the metadata management space, uh, again, like on top of Snowflake and a bunch of other data warehousing platforms. I was working with a ton of Snowflake customers and other customers as well. Realized that Snowflake had launched this very tiny nifty feature called external functions back then. And that for, for me was a spark to think about the fact that, hey, this is the future where you're not just treating the warehouse, as you said, like where you can dump the data, but you can essentially start to use it as a live source for other applications 
not just BI, but other applications that can be business-facing applications or embedded applications inside uh, inside other softwares uh, is the future, right? So uh, the reason why we start to think about problems in this domain is because we saw customer interest here. So when we started to speak to customers at Houseware, we realized that everyone's dumping the data, but the value is no good. It's only good for data and engineering teams. It's not really helpful for anyone who's, let's say, in sales, marketing, finance, customer success, product, all of these different functions. The data is there. The people are there. There's a disconnect between those that data essentially reaching those people. And which is where I also wanted to mention when Nipun was talking, another kind of chaos which comes in, right? Uh, I was talking to a customer earlier today, and he said, that product analytics, which is the problem that we are solving, the biggest challenge in adoption is not the data, not the events, not the visualizations, but rather the person who's trying to understand and do a funnel analysis, do they know the right events? Do they know the names of the right events, right? So uh, there's just these so many challenges which are abstractions on top of the data, which is residing in your data warehouse as a stale resource to make it more active, to make it more available to people as abstractions on top of it, right? So uh, Houseware essentially, as, as you already know, it's a product analytics tool. We compete with these mammoth organizations like Amplitude, Mixpanel, who we try to look at as first generation of product analytics solutions. Given that there was no customer data infra, which was present back in 20, 2009 or 2013 when these companies got started, they took the convenient approach, which was not wrong, it was right for that moment, to take all of the customer data, store it into their database, and then essentially serve the insights from top of it. Times have changed. Chief data officers, head of products, they all understand what a warehouse is. They're all using it on a day-to-day basis. They want to be doing more on top of it. And they just don't want to be looking at a funnel analysis as just a virtue of events data they're capturing. They also want to be driving impact from their sales data, which they're capturing transactions. And looking at a funnel, let's say, if let's say I'm a retail company, let's take Nike, for example. Um, Nike has like three lines of products. They have in-person stores where I can go in and purchase, let's say, a Nike shoe. Uh, I have the Nike Run Club application where I can record a run. And I also have their website where I can also purchase and essentially buy things. For a customer like myself, I can have like multiple footprints across the Nike ecosystem. But for them to realistically see the funnel of my journey and see that, hey, yesterday I walked into a store, today I did a run. Is there association between those two things or not? It's fairly hard because this data lives in like five different places today, right? So the warehouse is the place where this context resides, but there's no abstraction on top of it, which helps these companies to really dig deeper into the level four, level five kind of questions after they are done with the early journey of doing a very simple onboarding funnel analysis and things like those. So uh, I, I still believe that this problem is massively unsolved and we underappreciate, I think in the age of, Gen AI, LLMs, we underappreciate what all has to be done just in pure play analytics, which can be solved by just making data more accessible. And uh, that's that's where essentially we are targeting our focus right now as a team. No, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I, I agree with the thesis that companies today are don't have a data problem. They have a data prolif- proliferation problem and a deriving value from that data problem more than probably anything else just because, hey, Snowflake's made it easy. You can send everything there. You can land everything there. Um, As you think about all of that data making its way to Snowflake, how much of the transformation has to take place of that data prior to houseware? Is there a lot of work for a customer to do before it's ready for houseware to sort of, you know, uh, remove the entropy from that data and bring it to a place where it's in a state that, hey, 
we can actually give you real value from it. So the good thing about events data is that uh, almost all events data look alike, right? There's not a lot of uh, difference when it comes to, say, two different sources of events data. Of course, there can be nuances in how you're capturing certain event context properties and things as such. But fairly, what you're looking at is essentially a long stream of time series data. Right? There's an event identifier, there's a user identifier, uh, there's an event name that essentially tells you that, you know, hey, this user on your product did this particular event and maybe there are like these few contextual uh, information associated with this action, right? Uh, in that sense, uh, what we uh, typically do with our customers, because we are schema agnostic, uh, the neat thing here is that, and your data is already on your warehouse, you can write very light, uh, thin transformation on top of your event stream and essentially map it to uh, what we call like a houseware event schema, which is very similar to, you know, uh, event streams that you see there are like other implementations uh, in the industry around this as well. But essentially, it's a, a time series spec that we have uh, published. Uh, we we have certain, you know, DBD jobs, uh, DBD packages pre-built for certain commonly used uh, CDPs as well. So in that case, it's really easy for you to get started with there. Of course, there are like enough... Uh, uh, livers in, and configs in place so that you can tweak it for your specific business uh, uh, context. But uh, uh, otherwise, what it, it amounts to is essentially a very thin, very light transformation to this houseware event taxonomy. And once you're done, that typically takes like a few hours is uh, what I would say. And someone from our team essentially does an onboarding call, often like uh, often essentially I'm on those calls, understanding our customers' events and then you know, suggesting that then transformations and we just do this uh, on like a one hour onboarding call. And once that is done, uh, you know, the data team uh, at our customers, uh, uh, our customers data team can essentially go ahead and schedule this as a frequently running job. And then we just take it from there. Cool. Yeah, I was hoping you're going to say DBT. So we started with DBT um, and have used that extensively for, transforming and enhancing our own events, which we then utilize back and propel to, to serve to our customers in terms of uh, product analytics and, and insights. Um, one thing we've gotten real excited about, and I'm curious to hear your take on this, is dynamic tables is now obviously available. And had they've been talking about it for a long time. It was really at the forefront at the 2023 summit for Snowflake. Uh, are you starting to help customers transition from from say DBT over to over to dynamic tables now? That's something that's uh, definitely top of our uh, head. I mean, it, it just simplifies so much, right? And uh, what you get out of it is essentially a very low maintenance, almost no operational uh, way of uh, transforming your data, writing a complex data pipeline. Uh, we're still uh, exploring that. We we uh, haven't rolled it out in production, but uh, doing some internal tests to even understand, uh, you know, if, if it makes sense at this moment, but definitely something which is at the top of our head. Yeah, we're sort of in that similar journey as we've been watching that, waiting for it. Um, we were running, our original DBT jobs ran in Fargate containers and they were scheduled. Uh, then we got sort of tired of, of the additional overhead of Fargate and moved everything to Git Actions. Um, and they've been running there for, I don't know, probably the last six to seven months and have been flawless, have had no issues. 
But I look at it like, if I can put all this in a dynamic table, no longer have compute, uh, don't have to maintain yet a separate action, and can uh, you know, essentially you know, write the SQL or there's at the, uh, the, the DDL, I guess it is, for, um, you know, for Snowflake and have all of that generated and just stream my data in and then get that beautiful output table. I think you know, that seems to me like the, a, a very beautiful future. For sure. I think uh, we are exi- equally excited about it. Uh, one reason for us uh, that you know we, we haven't moved say sooner on this is essentially we also uh, all right yeah so essentially behind the scene to is make the whole uh, product analytics experience very interactive for our customers we do a lot of uh, clever pre computation in terms of you know computing certain metadata uh, and other things as well which is where uh, we do rely on TPT to maintain some of those uh, additional things. And uh, yeah, we have like certain DBT packages written for uh, these sole purposes. Uh, we still have to figure out how to map these to the new dynamic table paradigm. But uh, yeah, very excited about this uh, feature. I mean, in, in, a, in a previous job, I was essentially, you know, writing a lot of complex data pipelines. So I've had my fair share of uh, issues with, uh, you know, the, the day-to-day problems that we all see, the, the chaos that we see in data pipelines. And uh, definitely, this is something that I personally am very excited about. No, that's very cool. Yeah, we're, we are as well, like I said. Um, let's dive into how are you achieving this from a technology standpoint? What's that architecture look like? Who, who are you running on? What cloud have you chosen? Walk me through what you can of, of how you're solving this from a technical perspective. Sure. So if you look at Houseware, uh, Houseware essentially is uh, two things. Right? So one is uh, a beautiful, delightful UI for our customers, right? That's, that's number one, right? So that's also the gateway the canvas that uh, our users experience on a day-to-day. That is uh, written in uh, React, right? And uh, then we the, there's one more layer uh, in between the, the front end and the warehouse, which is uh, what we think as a really advanced, uh, uh, really advanced query generation engine, right? So the, this whole game is essentially taking, uh, you know, so say if a product manager comes onto a product, configures a funnel, configures a retention chart. Essentially, we take that, understand what the product manager is trying to do, and behind the scene generate a very efficient SQL that will then be executed on top of uh, the customer's warehouse, right? And then essentially, once the warehouse returns as the result, what we, re- of course, want to do is keep this uh, uh, the, the latency of this loop very tight so that the whole experience is quite uh, interactive. To do that, essentially, we have uh, a backend system, the compiler or the query gen- generation engine that I talked about, which is written in Golang, right? It uh, understands it is it, it understands the, uh, the nuances about the storage of the underlying warehouse, right? It, it understands what are the, say, it's some neat clever tricks that we've done in terms of optimizing the storage and actually leverages it to uh, write the most performant query on the fly dynamically, right? And once that's done, you know, the result goes back to the customer. But of course, like there are so many other 
uh, angles at play that that's only the the you know the the data computation part of things to give an experience which is also collaborative which is delightful which is you know divyan just uh, talked about challenges uh, around you know you have the data you have snowflake which is an amazing compute engine but if you don't really know what events to configure for your funnels everything just falls apart right so a lot of uh, you know features that essentially help with discovery management of all of this uh, a lot of ad- admin features that le- let you essentially control the experience for your end users gives you a very high level overview of you know what is happening we work with uh, large enterprises where you know data privacy residency all of these are very first class things and very top of the mind in which case we have like strict very granular access controls very similar to you know snowflakes access control that are essentially present on every feature on houseway and uh, that's that's all you know Im- implemented in house uh, again like uh, using a go backend service but essentially all of these sort of combine uh together to bring that experience which is very interactive cost efficient uh at the same time it's safe and uh you know trustworthy for our customers yeah you said a word that's uh that i think about a lot and that's from the customer span- standpoint is discovery right of of being able to help them discover the value that they have existing in their in their data set. And so we both operate from probably a very similar place. Like we connect to uh, customer Snowflake. We can see tables. From those tables, we have a rich set of information in terms of, of schemas, data types, you know, everything else. What have you seen successful or, or having success with to have that customer go from like zero to that aha moment of discovering things inside of their data that they maybe didn't previously know or had no idea existed. Yeah, I think I can take that one. And the way I, I think about this is that there is one paradigm of data, which is, as you said, right, schemas, you can see. There's tables, columns, rows, schemas, which someone who is a part of the data team, someone who's a part of the engineering team, they understand that very well. Our end users typically are product managers, product marketing managers, designers, UI, UX teams, right? So these are the typical folks who are coming onto houseware in these enterprises and trying to understand, okay, what is my user behavior journey like? The first step for houseware is to abstract away the complexity and the nuances of the words, tables, rows, columns, schemas, events into a taxonomy that they understand and change that language while behind the scenes, the magic that Nippon described essentially takes care of the fact that, hey, it is a good experience for them. Uh, what you realize is, and yesterday itself I was talking to someone, what you realize is the easiest aha moment for houseware is that the moment a end user realizes that I just need two events that to understand my user behavior journey and what is the drop-off to create a funnel, that is the easiest thing that they can do, right? So typically an onboarding, and this is, I'm just fitting into what Nippon also said, our onboarding time to a customer, we onboarded a fairly complex financial services organization uh, in less than three days recently. From there, their end users had access to houseware on their own data, where none of the data was on houseware's end. This was what Snowflake calls a connected application. So houseware essentially powers down all the queries to Snowflake. And instantly 40 users inside their company started to use houseware because earlier the data was not surfaced to them in a language that they could understand. It was essentially underserved as an organization. 
And these users are creating funnels, they're creating flows, they're creating these insights that uh, earlier was just not possible for them, right? And uh, the, the beauty of data is that you can essentially try to think of that as, so when you see a wrong number on the dashboard, either you think that, hey, is the number wrong? or something happened with my business that is something uh, probes me to go deeper into it. The good thing about this architecture is that in 99% of the cases, we are able to also ensure that the number, at least what you're saying, is what was captured. So you go on to think about the insights rather than questioning the analyst who was finding these insights for you or questioning the tool which was capturing this in a, in a fashion which was uh, not accurate in the first place, right? So... Uh, yeah, I would say there's like two two events. One funnel is all you need to get started. And from there, once you've tasted blood, you're never going back. And uh, one, one of our customers, again, recently said that you guys are just peddling drugs here because once this goes on for a few people inside the organization and it works, it's just going to go and be spread like wildfire. So uh, that's that's been the kind of uh, journey that we have seen right now with Houseware. No, it's it's exciting. Like when I think of of being a product engineer and especially being a product engineer and a founder, when you put that solution out there and watching the 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 consumer, your customer, get that first aha moment is is magical, and it's 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 why we do it. Typically, would do you get that opportunity one to to sort of sit with the customers and watch them have that moment? Um, and, and how fast do you, have you seen that happen um, in some of your installs or your, your uh, deployments? No, yeah, uh, we, we get to see that a lot. And uh, that is just like raw fuel for us, to be honest. Like that just keeps, keeps everything so exciting and uh, keeps all of us very motivated as well. And in, in, yeah, so we, we essentially, uh, you know, as part of... Uh, building a relationship with our customers as part of understanding, you know, uh, what goes next into our product roadmap. We essentially keep keep talking to our customers on a frequent uh, basis, of course, like we, we are a product analytics company, so we capture our own fair share of uh, events that users perform on our product. And we also talk food houseware for the same purposes to understand, you know, what is working for them, what is not working for them. And then essentially going back and, understanding, you know, what happened, what did not happen. And just, you know, even asking them a simple question, uh, at, which is as simple as, can you just like show me how you do a specific thing? And you know, just observing where, uh, you know, they showed a tiny amount of frustration because a, a, an event uh, page just took longer to load, right? Or maybe like they were confused and it took them like a few clicks to understand what happened. Uh, I think so. We, we typically see that happening as as early as like you know one or two days uh, into th once the implementation is ready. We often see this uh, just like you know how we are super excited seeing our customers try this out. Even they are. It's almost like it's as if you know they're getting to play with a new toy, right? Except uh, you know so it's all all new. It's all shiny for them. And uh, we we typically, you know, uh, like to sit with our customers in person, uh, walk them through and essentially ask them to, you know, build something that helps solve for some problem that is very top of the mind for them. And uh, then, of course, like iterating on top of that to just help them understand that, you know, uh, on, on essentially what if whether what they're seeing is actually uh, what they wanted to achieve. But yeah, I think we've seen 
aha moments as as close as you know one day into the implementation once the data is ready a bunch of users we typically you know uh, uh, start getting a lot of inbound questions and uh, suggestions from them on how to do certain things better now have you ever seen a customer set everything up get to that moment of of like the first discovery and then just being like holy crap this is like so much better than i expected or the old, the the uh, the opposite of that, like oh man, we're in trouble. <laughs> uh, we've seen that with uh, one specific thing. So we have this uh, very nifty feature that we called user flows. Right, essentially uh, a way of analyzing uh, what users do on your product after they do something. Right, so maybe after they land on your homepage or after they log into your product, what all possible things they are doing. It is sort of a bird's eye view of the land. And it's essentially, uh, for, for folks you know who understand uh, data charts, essentially a sanky visualization, right? So you can imagine you know, different nodes and then essentially these streams of uh, users flowing between these nodes. And the first time when they actually see it, it that's like just uh, like a very wow, a very aha moment for them. Typically because, you know, they haven't, maybe seen something like this before. It's like a lot of uh, novelty for them. But at the same time, it's also like a very fascinating way of, uh, you know, essentially looking, look at everything from uh, a 10,000 feet view. It's, it's almost as if, you know, you go to the tallest building in, in your city that you are very well familiar with, but then you just see it in a very different light. Uh, and that is something that we've seen happen quite a lot across uh, our users. Yeah, I'm always I'm always surprised of how many teams, uh, especially on the product engineering side, have never seen the shape of the data, have never really gotten to visualize the data. I mean, we had an experience early on where we had set up essentially the first visualization. They built the first metric. They went to look at it, and immediately they were scratching their heads. They're like, "All right, something is not right here." And you know, of course, it's like, okay, they point at the vendor first. Is it okay? What did you guys do? It's like no, no, no. <laughs> it wasn't us in this case. You, you, know, you have the, you have this complete anomaly here over these these certain time periods. And uh, you know, funny enough, they had to go back and, and realize their DBT model was actually wrong, um, and 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 it messed things up. And so they went out and fixed it and came back. And then it was like, okay, now that now that's that's right. But it was interesting because like I, you have all this data, but you're not doing anything with it. You're not even visualizing. You're not asking any questions of it. It's almost like what's the point of having it? And then you put it into the hands of the team and they're so excited that they now have it and they can see it and they start to discover things and they start to figure out what they can build with it, how they can iterate on it, how they can get more value out of it. And then that value translates into customer value. And now your customers are taking the data you've been collecting that's maybe been stagnant for years or months or just sitting there and now they're empowered. And now they're, now they're like, this is great, it's working. How do I expand? How can I spend more with you? How can I, now it's, and there's, now there's trust as well because now your customer can see all of that stuff. I'm assuming that's similar sort of journeys and experiences you're seeing as, as your customers are building with Houseware and they're delivering products for their customers. It is, it is. And I think uh, a lot of it also boils down to customers who see data as an asset. I think we are, we are gone past that age where you have to sell people on the value of data. I think everyone fundamentally believes that data has some value. Some treat it highly, some do not. Some try to think of it as a fictitious thing that we'll probably get to someday. But the others who are really putting it into action are the best kind of customers because, as you said, they are the ones who are able to take this data and turn into customer value for their own customers as well, right? So uh, 
especially the kind of segments that we are going after in the market, financial services, the whole motto behind this segment of the market is financial services, retail, the anywhere where you have large number of end users who are interacting with your web or mobile app, the the whole point of the game is you have to identify those users who are almost like similar to what Kevin Kelly's point is around like 100 true fans, but this is not just 100. This is like a, maybe a million sometimes. Who are those true fans of your product? Can I identify them as a cohort? Can I monetize them in the future? Can I make them, can I increase that average order value and things like those, right? So uh, we are seeing a lot of that. And some of our customers, in fact, like are also finding value and just improving activation rates. So an ad tech company is one of our customers and they launched a new feature for students and the schools that that the software is used in. And they saw that if they just change the onboarding flow slightly, where they capture little information and let them enrich this information later on, the activation rate for the teachers who are essentially hosting these quizzes on their product goes up by 30%. Now, those are the kind of insights that we are able to help them derive and then work work their way through. But at the same time, we also see moments where they look at the data and then they're like, holy crap, what was that? And recently, I think that happened as well. So we were onboarding a new customer and uh, there is a data team in the room, obviously, because they are the ones who are implementing houseware, so to say. There's the product managers in the room. There's also one developer in the room, right? And the first thing that they do is that they go ahead with this visualization called trends and they plot a trend of an action which was completed. Let's say Know Your Customer, KYC, is completed and they're seeing day on day, okay, how many users did the onboarding successfully and actually got to this final step of coming to it. The line is almost straight, a little bit, I would say, growing, but then there's just one day where it's like a drop. And first, I used to think like, yeah, like the first instinct goes that maybe the data isn't correct. Or as you said, the DBT job was not running that day. Now the data team, the product manager looks at the data team person and the data team person looks at a developer and the, and the product manager then says, was this the day when the production release broke? And this was just the most, this was just the most awkward moment in that room because everyone's just looking at each other and trying to like sort of push it away under the carpet and just like move on. But those are the kind of things that data reveals, right? It, it, data never hides anything and uh, it's going to bring back all those ghosts of the past uh, that you are hiding away. So uh, it, it's just value at the same time. Also some uh, dark stories that people probably try to cover up. Yeah, I know if there's if there's honesty in the data, it just doesn't lie and you can't hide. Um, and in this particular case, it was like it was very apparent, right? It was like, nope, that was the issue. And uh, you know, you, you can't hide behind it. You couldn't say, like, well, no, no I, you know, I don't know what happened there. It's like, no, it's you can see something clearly happened. You know, there's an anomalous event here. We're missing data, or the da- data is totally skewed. And it's it, it's like I like it, it leads to more questions, but it also sort of forces or should force uh, a level of honesty and consistency into your data and your data practices. And, you know, I think this is this is exactly where, uh, you know, product analytics shines over some of the other ways that companies use to understand user behavior. You do surveys, you do, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you maybe look at user, you do user interviews. But the problem there always is that, uh, Sometimes people just don't know what, what they want or what, what, what they're going to do, right? I, I always like to joke around that, you know, a lot of us can't keep our uh, New Year's resolutions, right? So it's very difficult to 
uh, essentially predict in future uh, as to what you're going to do with the product feature, what you like, what you dislike. But once you look at the objective data, there there are no lies, right? There are no there's no guesswork. You can just get a very objective view of what's happening and essentially use that to build uh, better features for your customer, improve their pain points, and just improve their lives. Yeah, it's true understanding right there. So with all the customers you, you deal with um, that have, you know, varying sizes of, of data sets, what would be sort of, you know, your prediction in terms of how much that data just goes unused and is just sitting there generating money for Snowflake or generating money for whichever warehouse provider, but just gets, nobody's looking at it. It's got cobwebs, it's got dust. It's just costing money. I think... Uh... Difficult to put a number uh, there, but I think it's a lot of it for sure. And uh, that typically, you know, uh, I think uh, because of how we are architected in terms of, you know, uh, building on top of Snowflake, a lot of the times those wasted uh, costs are often attributed to houseware, right? Uh, in terms of just uh, wasted uh, storage cost. And of course, with time, we have architected our way in a way where, you know, we sort of ignored that data that is not being used anymore. So that doesn't end up wasting compute on our uh, customer Snowflake instance. But there is some uh, cost to storage, uh, definitely, which is where, you know, our users came uh, you know, came to us and essentially asked them to build, just build features that give them more, a lot of transparency in terms of, you know, what is being used, what are the event volumes. And typically what uh, we see that, you know, with this information that we just provide to them, right? It's, it's there. They, they could have just like gotten it from their own warehouse, but then just giving people transparency and access to this information that just means that, you know, we've seen people do quarterly auditing of uh, their events and then they essentially plan for some sort of cleanup. And uh, that just reduces uh, confusion. A lot of the times these events are just deprecated. They were, you know, being captured in an older release of your app, but not really relevant anymore because that feature itself got uh, uh, sunsetted, right? In such cases, we've seen that, you know, it just... uh, uh, the data team is especially happy about, uh, you know, these kinds of uh, instances. And uh, I, I think it's a cat and mouse problem for sure. Uh, actually running uh, an effective product analytics team does require a lot of discipline. And uh, it, it requires discipline in terms of being very thoughtful about, you know, what you want to capture for your users. But at the same time, being cognizant and being aware that sometimes things just don't make sense anymore and just being willing to just prune it. Uh, you know, this whole industry, we, we, we saw a bunch of tools that sort of did things around auto capture. You don't have to really go and instrument what is uh, relevant for your users. But, uh, you know, you go talk to customers who've tried those tools. Essentially, what happens is that, you know, you have a lot of noise uh, and it's very difficult to find signal in that noise. And uh, just a lot of confusion, a lot of chaos, and on top of all of that, a lot of cost for the customers as well. Yeah, as I say, that that the auto instrumentation I have seen typically leads to a big ass bill, and a, and a lot of spend and a lot of waste. Um, you know, where I really saw that, you know, in in sort of like 
crazy amounts of scale was, you know, you think of you, you, you know, bigger companies start to build uh, core libraries and, and libraries are building blocks that, you know, that kind of like base level everyone can build off of. And they instrument those things. And when they instrument those things, it sends data to, you know, whatever system they're collecting logs, events, anything else like that. And you can imagine all these teams just start, you know, copy, paste, copy, paste, just I'm going to use it, I'm going to use it, I'm going to use it. And then it's just, you have this amount of data that's just insanity that no one ever looks at. But, you know, the corporation gets this massive bill um, that, you know, it, it, now they now they can't get headcount because I've spent too much on logging or I've spent too much sending you know data to the 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 data warehouse or anything else like that. Uh, I had a CTO on here that he did, he kind of described it as constant gardening. Uh, it was being a constant gardener. You're in there constantly pruning, you know, taking away the the bad stuff and and trimming the leaves and and getting it to you have a nice you know pristine plant or pristine set of tables of of things that you actually want that are going to provide value. It is, it is exactly that. And it is an act of discipline. It is an act of also not being driven by vanity metrics around how, how much event scale are you running on because that does not matter. At the end of the day, I think a lot of organizations take pride in, hey, this was at a 500 million event scale or this is at X billion event scale. Does not matter. <laughs> doesn't <laughs> like, matter right? at all. Like you, you can, doesn't matter at all. And, and I think a, a lot of this also is inspired by the fact that a lot of business software in the last decade was inspired to be increasing consumption of capturing data, right? And capturing data and keeping it into their silos. I don't think that capturing data is wrong. You should capture as much data as you want. As long as you have the right storage, as long as you have the right policies around it, which is typically what object stores can also give you, something like an S3 GCS. You don't really have to go to uh, a logging system or a product analytics system, which is just storing it never giving it back to you and charging you on top of it, uh, that's the worst because you locked yourself in into a system and a software which is not aligned to your tech stack, which is not aligned to your vision of the future as well. So uh, requires constant gardening for sure. And I think that's a really good way of putting it. I think I love the both the things that I heard. Like one was around discipline from Nippon and then the second thing was around gardening. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think the other you know, bit I want to put in there is is the value out of that data, right? Like, yes, you should be in, you should be empowered to capture the data that you need as much as you need. You should be empowered to store that data. But at the same time, at, for what point, right? You'd said earlier, like, oh, vanity metrics of like, oh, we built a system that can handle, you know, 500 million events and, and we've got five terabytes of data. Okay. What is that, what value is coming back to the customer or the enterprise out of that five terabytes of data and that giant ass pipeline you built other than a huge AWS bill and, or GCP bill? Like what else is there? And I, I feel like, you know, back to those vanity metrics, you've seen people like tout like, oh, I built this amazing system and it's, it's this pipeline is incredible. It's, it's robust and handled, you know, resilient. What value is coming out of it? Did you build it for your resume? And, you know, you can now you know, leave that company with this amazing bit on your resume. I would want to always ask that question is, okay, part of the gardening is what, what am I getting out of that garden? Is that garden giving me a bunch of edible, you know, vegetables, fruits or something like that? Or is it giving me weeds? And the interesting thing is, I don't think this is unique to the data ecosystem, no. right? It's just, it goes back to think about software engineering teams as well. A lot of people like to build software 
no developer really likes to maintain their already built software because that, that's boring. That's that's not going to give you that ROI on your own personal track of the journey. Everyone wants to just build. Everyone wants to create new things. That's that's the environment that we are in, right? So, uh, yeah, it's the it's the hard, unsexy things that you got to do to keep a business running and be frugal about it. At the same time, like being conscious about what value you're able to bring. So. Balancing that is the hard act, especially in the current macro as well. Yeah, totally agree. So let's ask another question. What is, without divulging a customer name probably, because maybe they're still a customer or something like that, but what is the craziest shit you've seen a customer do with data? Okay, that's an interesting one. Yeah, maybe I can talk about a customer who was not a houseware customer, but a customer of mine in the past yeah. life, right? And uh this is a fairly old school enterprise. I mean, you can imagine the as enterprise as it gets in the retail industry, one of the big names out there. And the way that their business runs and operates, data is super critical. But at the same time, given that they're old school in nature, they do not have the best of the breed tools, or at least did not have the best of the breed tools, right? So you're talking 50,000 employees in this company. You're talking a field force of around 5,000 people who are taking actions on a day-to-day basis in every part of Asia. And the way those 5,000 people got their data was in Excel sheets that were emailed to them, which was connected to an SAP BIW system. SAP BIW was a system which was created like maybe, what, 20 years ago? And... uh, I was probably six then. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so it was created at that point in time. This is an enterprise running in 2019, uh, Fortune 500. And 5,000 people are emailed that connected spreadsheet because it is essentially, it's not, the, while the data might be huge, it I'm forgetting the name of the technology. I think Microsoft has something called an SSIS server where you could just like click refresh and then it would refresh the data as of that date from the OLAP cube that they had maintained, right? And I was massively surprised that this organization, which had they had geographical hierarchies going back from countries to as granular as one mile square in uh, in remote parts of Asia, and this entire field force of five thousand people is managing every day, day in and day out, how much goods are being sold on the ground. And reporting it back using that spreadsheet. And again, like tomorrow coming back and seeing their targets and putting in the achieved there. And this is the most old school CRM software or I would say a booking software that I saw being running on not a modern data stack, but I would say an ancient data stack for sure. And I was the first time I saw it, I was A, I was surprised that organizations still run on that stack, but I was also surprised because of the fact that it was running effectively for that organization and there was no need to create change in behavioral implications for the people who are used to the system, right? So uh, as data people, I think we are always running towards the most savvy, fancy new technology out there. But sometimes it's important to know that the customers probably don't need that and they are happy with something which is frugal, works for them, and uh, yeah, probably doesn't have to be shiny at all. That's the, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it paradigm. If I didn't, yeah, for sure. <laughs> what about you, Nipun? Anything, uh, any crazy tales of uh, data you've seen? I have, I have my fair share of uh, crazy data uh, tales. Uh, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, so back, back uh, in a different uh, uh, again before houseware, uh, I, I was essentially working on uh, a product that uh, essentially does uh, identity resolution. Right. So identity resolution 
as a service. What that means is, uh, you know, this was in the marketing tech uh, domain. And we were essentially, uh, uh, you know, what we used to do was imagine uh, an enterprise that is slightly old school. Uh, you know, you have your mom and pop shops, slightly larger than that also, like, but, but like old school retail chains where, you know, when you go, go and purchase something, they capture, yeah, they essentially capture, you know, your phone number, your email, right? But then, uh, you're moving to this era where people are being targeted and communicated with on Google, on Instagram, on TikToks of the world, right? all digital footprints, digital media. So we had a product that essentially let our customers bring in, you know, phone numbers, email address, and then we'll essentially map it out, give you digital identifiers of these customers, right? So this problem essentially uh, required uh, stitching together multiple identities of a single user, right? And then that means that, you know, you that user could could be, uh, doing essentially capturing digital footprints across uh, 50 different places on the internet, but essentially being able to stitch this together into a unified identity, being able to identify that, you know, is the same user doing all these operations. Uh, behind the scene that, you know, we, we essentially used to gather uh, identity data from a bunch of uh, data providers, right? And uh, have a fair share of data quality issues, right? So at one point in time, uh, what we noticed was essentially we used to merge identifiers, right? So for example, if uh, you know I I logged in with uh, uh, onto a specific device uh, with with a specific cookie, and then I use my email address, right? The I have a way of mapping both of these together. Now, the the world of data is so messy that you know sometimes you can have very weird junk behaviors. Sometimes your identifiers or your cookies aren't populated the right way. And what that means is that suddenly you have millions of users being tagged to the same junk identifier, right? And at one point in time, uh, and we used to run like a fairly elaborate setup of of a graph database, we actually realized that, you know, due to data issues, a single user had 300 million supposed identifiers or digital identifiers, which is clearly wrong. That's like, that, that's just not possible. Right. And uh, that, that just like happened due to a lot of reasons. And of course, like, you know, certain systems are just not built to manage that kind of data skew, uh, understanding it, preemptively identifying it, uh, you know, that required a lot of uh, probabilistic, uh, filtering of data, understanding, you know, which which sources of data are just incorrect and then fixing all of that because then all of that is wasted data. So, yeah, uh, essentially arrived at a state where we thought that a single user had 300 million different uh, digital identities all over the web. That's one of those ones like, I don't think we got this right. What happened? <laughs> yeah, they're sitting down. They're like, oh, shit, something. We spent all this time and this is what we got. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> That's not fun. All right, guys, anything, any last things you would like uh, listeners of Data Chaos to know? I think anyone who's listening and relates to these data chaos issues that we have been talking about, feel free to reach out. I mean, happy to have these conversations one-on-one. 
um, yeah, you're happy to also try out the household product. So if you find yourself in a place where you're collecting a lot of events and you want to be using those events to drive meaningful value for your end customers, improving the customer experience, reach out. Uh, I think household.io, our emails are divyansh at household.io and nipun at household.io. So there we go. There we go. Nipun, anything? No, uh, similar. Uh, I mean, uh, have a lot of, uh, lot of, mo- lot more of uh, data chaos stories to share, and also always open to hearing about them, and you know, also like discussing how to fix them. So if you have uh, anything crazy to share, uh, happy to you know understand that. We we on a day to day we face a lot of uh, chaotic data challenges at uh, houseware. Uh, if you know you're looking for a worthy challenge, uh, would love to connect with uh, you know any of you and collaborate on that and just have, have a good time. Yeah, it seems like anybody that's been in data long enough has got plenty of uh, of crazy stories and, and challenges. Maybe it'll be one of these days. I'll have to do an episode that just focuses on you know who can show up with the craziest story or the craziest challenge and and how they solved it, or maybe they didn't solve it. Uh, maybe that'd be a fun episode to do one of these days. Totally. Absolutely. Looking forward to hearing uh, that episode. <laughs> well, you may just have to come on it. Maybe I'll have like, you know, three or four people. Who knows? We'll see. You have to have to bring a few different folks on there to to tell their war stories, right? We should we should have a shark tank, but for the craziest data story, right? I mean, you come and you pitch your data story. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> pitch your data story. Maybe you can come on. Yeah, it's like, what kind of craziness have people seen and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, but we'll probably start to hear like the ones where like somebody deleted the entire production database and they didn't have a backup or they deleted it. They had a backup, but the backup didn't work. And, you know, those, those are, I think those are like too easy. We need something a little more, a little juicier, right? A little harder. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate your time and thank you so much for coming on the Data Chaos podcast. I obviously wish you all the best in your endeavors there at Houseware and uh, look forward to, uh, collaborating and uh, talking more about data sometime in the future. Thank you so much, Tyler. This was a lot of fun. And yeah, hope to talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks for having us. 